This week, an important moment in world history. After years of bloodshed, the fighting finally ceased. The troops who remained standing could return home. On September 2, 1945, Japan surrendered, marking the end of World War II. Individuals are coming together for the 78th anniversary of the end of World War II. It's a sobering time as we remember the lives lost in battle. It's a heartbreaking time recalling the wickedness displayed in concentration camps overseas and the inhumane treatment in intern camps, even in the United States. But it's also an inspiring time, remembering the soldiers who showed resilience and bravery on the battlefield. We were exposed to the best and the worst of humanity, which helps us realize that we are in need of a savior. We can't save ourselves. We can't win a war to end all wars. That can only come by the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, who promises peace when he returns. Welcome to Haven Today. I'm Charles Morris, sharing the great story that's all about Jesus. And here on the final week in August, we're beginning a series called War and Grace. Some have said he's the real-life Forrest Gump. But Louis Zamperini's story is much more than a man who ran in the Olympics, fought in World War II and survived the brutal beatings in a Japanese concentration camp. In the last few years, a book and then two movies have been released about his life. But today, I want you to hear from him firsthand from an interview I did with him back in 2011, just a couple of years before he went home to be with the Lord. I encourage you to stick around and hear his incredible but very true story. How did he go from a delinquent kid in L.A. to an Olympic runner? And how did that unbroken spirit lead him to fight in World War II? And just how did Jesus mend his broken heart after the war? After the program, I want to send you a copy of a book called War and Grace, Short Biographies from the World Wars, with 13 powerful real-life stories, including Louis. This book shows how the Lord was at work in their lives, even in the turbulent years of the Great War and World War II. Believe me, once you start this book, you won't be able to put it down. So for your gift to this listener-supported ministry, I want to send you War and Grace. After the program, you can visit our website to see the book for yourself and then make your gift at haventoday.org. That's haventoday.org. And then you'll find other resources, like a video we shot with Louie, and a special blog post about his life. Or call us at 800-65-HAVEN, 800-65-HAVEN. And if you wanted to, but just didn't get around to it, we still have Then Sings My Soul, 150 of the world's greatest hymn stories. And speaking of that, let's open with a song loosely based on the classic hymn, How Great Thou Art, by Corin Hawthorne and Matt Mayer, and it's simply called How Great. All I've been through, all I've seen you do, for this I will praise you. My eyes were open, my chains were broken, and for this I
Zamperini, welcome to Haven. Can you share your story with us? You were born and raised not too far from here. Well, actually, I was born in Oleon, New York, and my brother was four years old. I was two years old, and we both had double pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And the doctor said, get your kids to California immediately, or they could die. So my dad and mother got on the train the next morning, and uh, a week later, we're living in Long Beach. In the book, uh, Unbroken, you're described as a juvenile delinquent as a young boy. Yeah, well, to shorten the phrase, I was a rotten kid. Second to none. <laughs> 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 but the police still knew you in Torrance, didn't they? That uh, that yeah, Zamperini kid. I think when anything happened, they all they did they chased me and I got away from them. But then when I got home, they were parked in front of my house. So <laughs> they they probably figured ninety percent of the crimes were committed by me and my buddies. But then again, uh, my brother took me in tow and said. We've got to change your life. You have to get an interest in life. I had no interest except gang-related. And then my brother said, we got to get him out for sports. And the chief said, well, may I suggest running? We've been chasing him all over town for a long time. <laughs> so then I began to train. I was the first one in my school to get in the All-City Finals. And this is high school. You're yeah. in high school at this point. Yeah, I'm a freshman. Entered the cross-country race at UCLA, the, the state cross-country. And uh, there were 101 runners. Class A, Class B, and Class C. I'm Class C. I'm a, I'm a, a, I'm a sophomore. Mm-hmm. And I was afraid I'd come in last. My brother said, get out there and run and just think about the finish. So the race started, and I can't remember my feet touching the ground. I was in such great shape. This is the greatest race of my life. People said, was the Olympics the greatest? No, no. I'm a C. And I came in a quarter of a mile ahead of the A runner and broke all three records, A, B, and C. <laughs> and so as a, as a sophomore in high school, I ran a 9.57, two-mile. Wow. And so that was the greatest race of my life. And then the Olympics came, but I was still a high school kid. And what, what year are we when the Olympics came? 1936 now. 36, World but, War II had not yet started. No, right. So my biggest effort would have been 1940, because I'm too young for the Olympics. But you still got there? Well, by switching races, I, a runner was coming out here from up north who was the second best 5,000-meter runner. Mm-hmm. Well, in those days, they didn't like kids to run that far. Mm. But my brother said, well, I want you just to get in the race and see how close you can get to this guy because he's going to make the Olympics. Mm. I got in the race, and the last two laps, I said, I can't believe it. I'm right behind him, so I passed him. <laughs> Made him mad, and he passed me, I passed him. The sports guy says it was the greatest race they'd seen in Southern California because we were battling each other for the lead. Sure. And then down the whole stretch, I got about 15 yards ahead of him, but we were running against a fellow from San Pedro that we were lapping. And the officials forgot to tell him to go off the track till the last minute, mm. and they motioned him off towards me as I was trying to pass him. We collided, and I hit the ground. Now my opponent is heading for the tape. I jumped up on my feet, and I caught him at the tape, but he beat me maybe an inch. Wow. So then I knew I could beat him. So then on the strength of that, I got a, an invitation to New York and uh, for the Olympic tryouts, and there I, ha- I tied uh, the world's record holder for the two-mile uh, to make the team, and that was uh, another great thrill of my life. Everybody was proud of you. Now, Louie, you did go to the Olympics as a very young man in 1936, and the Olympics was in Berlin. Uh, the war hadn't started. Tell us about that. On the boat going across the Atlantic, 
uh, I'd never seen so much food in my life. And just during the Depression, so you can imagine, mm -hmm. my heart beat fast, my mouth opened up big. You started eating. I ate, I gained 14 pounds across the Atlantic, and I couldn't lose it in time for the race. So I'm way behind, but the last lap, my brother always taught me, when you come to the last lap, everybody's tired, uh, but you got to go all out. He says, isn't one minute of pain worth a lifetime of glory? And so I spent the whole last lap in 56 seconds, which made the papers. I came in eighth, but it was the last lap that drew people to their feet, gaining 50 yards. And so as a result of that, uh, Hitler sent for me, so I got to meet Hitler. And all he said was, the boy was a fast finish. Wow. So you shook hands with Adolf yeah, Hitler. I, I, yeah, we touched hands, and, and that was it. And, of course, at that time, everybody said, Louis Zamperini, next Olympics, Finland, 1940, you were going to take the gold. Mm. But other things happened in the world caused by Herr Hitler. Well, yeah, with the, we were all primed for the 40 Olympics. I uh, got in the best shape of my life. Then the word came that Pearl Harbor had been attacked and mm -hmm. something we couldn't believe. We forgot about being Olympians and wanted to get in the war and get it over with as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. So I ended up as a bombardier and a B-24 bomber. We had uh, the first raid on Wake Island at the longest raid of the war, round trip from Midway. And then we were sent way down near Australia, uh, the Ellis Islands, and a little island called Funafuti. From there, we were to bomb the famous uh, phosphate island called Nauru. Mm -hmm. And the Japanese, of course, needed phosphate for both fertilizer and, and uh, bombs. And bombs, yes. And uh, so 26 bombers flew over, and we flattened that place. But we had three zeros that attacked us alone for several minutes. And they came in so close, they couldn't miss us. And they came in so close, we couldn't miss them. We shot down all three zeros. However, here we had just under 600 bullet holes, five cannon holes, the right tail shot off, the left tire flattened, hydraulic unit out, and we didn't know what to do. We, we knew we couldn't <laughs> get back to base. Right. We decided to take a chance and, and fly back to Funafuti and make a crash landing, which we did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm getting my flights mixed up, but that was a very close call. But then a little later... You're flying again, and you didn't make it. Well, yeah, we, we, our plane was totally, couldn't fix it. I, I, and the general said, I'd never seen a bomber come back from a mission that shot up and land. And still made it uh, back. Yeah, but the plane was totaled, and our crew was gone, so we had to go back to Hawaii. And we were assigned a new ship, and then we were assigned a new crew from the States, a green crew. When you come in from a mission, you get a couple of days off. Mm -hmm. So we were heading for Honolulu. We got to the main gate. And the operations officer came out and said, we need you to fly towards Palomar Island. We got a report that a B-25 crashed at sea. And uh, you're to go look for them. So they sent two bombers. But our plane was being serviced, so we had to take a plane that was a, a lemon. Nobody could fly it. It wouldn't fly in combat. We got about 200 miles north of uh, Palmyra where the B-25 had crashed. Mm -hmm. And we started flying in circles, scanning the water. And number one motor went out. And that plane wouldn't land on four motors. With one mm -hmm. out, it started to mm -hmm. drop. Mm -hmm. And then number two went out. And then we, we went down at, at an angle, hit the water at full speed. The plane blew up into pieces. And uh, there were 11 of us aboard. And three of us survived the crash. I mm -hmm. uh, got in a life raft and... Uh, started our drift. 
Mm. The, mm. Next, the next 47 days on the ocean. And uh, you and two others made it alive at the beginning. At the beginning, yeah. The tail gunner was a mess to begin with. He was physically unfit for a situation like this, and uh, he was a heavy drinker, smoker, and on the raft, he did panic the first half hour. He ate your chocolate. Oh, he, and he ate up all the chocolate during the night. I couldn't believe this and, guy. And chocolate was one of those things that they put in all... Fortified. To fortify you. He ate enough for for six guys for a week. Mm. And I thought he was going to die, but it didn't bother him. So the next morning, you're waking mm. up. You're mm. on the high seas of the Pacific. There's no food. No food. And so then he panicked and started screaming, we're going to die. We're all going to die, his exact words. And I tried to settle him down with psychology. It didn't work. I threatened to make a report on him when we got rescued. That didn't work, so I had to crack him across the face. I knocked him on his fanny, and he lay there in complete contentment. It's what he needed. It was like medicine for him. Mm. <laughs> and they call that applied psychology. <laughs> but I started a program of mental exercises every day. Mm. Mm. So we memorized teaching his other words to songs, uh, planning for the future, how about your past, and so every day we had exercise, and he kept improving mm. instead of getting worse. At the end of 33 days, he died, and uh, he was sharper than any time in his life. Mm. So we're on a raft like that. There's no reason for anybody hallucinating if you keep your mind active and have a, a positive attitude and a lot of humor. Then we were spotted by a Japanese bomber, and the bomber strafed us with two machine guns for a half hour. It's unbelievable, but we were tangled up together uh, to begin with, and the bullets would miss our groin by an eighth of an inch, mm. armpit, 48 holes in the space that we were in, and nobody touched by a bullet. Mm. And the sharks swimming uh, all well, around this, you. Yeah, this was a, a miracle of miracles. And then there were sharks in the water, but so I decided to get under the raft after the first two strafings and push my head as far below the surface as I could. And I could see the bullets coming through. When I came up, I knew the other two were mm. dead because too mm. many bullets came through the raft. Mm. Oh, they weren't touched. They were still alive. Every time I came up, I knew they were hit and they weren't touched. Mm. And this is a, the greatest miracle I've ever seen. Mm. And at the same time, your friend, when uh, you're on this raft for 47 days, your friend, the pilot, he would pray. Well, we all prayed. That's all we did. You know, like, like Billy Graham says, when man comes to the end of his rope and there's nowhere else to turn, he turns to God. Mm. So that was, that was what we did. We prayed. Uh, we'd gone seven days without water. Sixth night, we did pray for water for the first time. Because mm. we thought we'd get water. When we prayed for water the next day, in the afternoon, yes, we got water for the first time in seven days. And then we were picked up by the Japanese and taken to the island of Kwajalein. We couldn't stand up or walk for four days. And this is called Execution Island. Execute everybody that comes there. So our date of execution was set. Mm. But we were able to, by a panel of six naval officers, we were able to defeat them. That's how sharp we were. Mm. Uh, so there's no reason for anybody to hallucinate after 47 days on a raft if you keep your mind activated mm. and you get enough food just just survive. Uh, now, th this is going to be hard, and I, and I know it would take two hours, but can you just tell us a little bit about the man who almost broke you, the bird? He was notorious for being a, a, a psychopath, and so I had to tolerate him till the war's end, mm. and they threatened to kill me twice, but uh, I lived through it. He 
left two days before we knew the war was over and escaped into the hills and lived there for eight years until amnesty was signed. Then he came out a free man. Mm, mm. How long were you in uh, prison camps, Japanese prison camps? Well, at the time I left home, I was two and a half years. I'd say over, just over two years. Mm, mm. The war is over. It took a toll on you. But you come back to Los Angeles. Uh, you met your wife there. I met my wife. Yeah, they sent us on a rest cure to Miami uh, Air Force. And that's where I met my wife. And uh, within six months, we were married and uh, had one child. And, yeah, I had my second child about the same time. And Billy Graham came to town. And This was uh, the and, original Billy Graham crusade that launched his career. But can you tell me one little story in there, though? The, the war would affect you. You were still affected, and you would have these nightmares in the middle of the night. And you were married, and, and uh, it got ugly sometimes, didn't it? Well, the nightmares started in prison because when you're tortured like that on a daily basis, yeah, I had nightmares. I'm always strangling the, the bird. The nightmares were there. They followed me home every night. And then my wife um, went to hear Billy Graham. And uh, it took her two days to convince me I should go. And then that's when Billy Graham, uh, I said, well, when it says every head bowed and every eye closed, we're out of there. I started out, and then he said something in his message about when people come to the end of the rope, nowhere else to turn, they turn to God. I thought that's what I did. You thought I already did that on the raft? That's what I thought. I said, made thousands of promises all through prison, and that if I came home alive, I'd seek God and serve him, and I didn't. So that's what convinced me to go back to the prayer room to see what was in store for me. Mm. And this fellow got me on my knees and started praying for me. And I made my decision for Christ. And while I was still on my knees, I knew it was all over. Still drinking. I'd forgiven all my guards, including the bird. Believe me, that was a miracle. And uh, so I had a whole new life now. I do not believe that any man can solve the problems of life without Jesus Christ. There are tremendous marital problems. There are physical problems. There are financial problems. There are problems of sin and habit that cannot be solved outside the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you trusted Christ Jesus as Savior? Tonight, I'm glad to tell you as we close that the Lord Jesus Christ can be received, your sins forgiven, your burdens lifted, your problems solved, by turning your life over to him, repenting of your sin, and turning to Jesus Christ as Savior. Louis Zamperini, would you mind praying for our listeners? And, and some may not even know Jesus as Savior. Would, would you lead us in prayer? Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank thee that you were in Christ, reconciling man unto yourself. For yourself of the world you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then the scriptures tell us that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And so my prayer is, Lord, that both young and old alike, when they hear this message, that they would commit their hearts to Jesus become part of the heavenly family. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
That's the Billy Graham Crusade Choir singing a very familiar song. Heard at his crusades around the world for decades, just as I am. And that is exactly how Louis Zamperini came to the Lord. I'm so thankful I was able to meet him in person and hear him share his story. You know, he was still sharing his faith about his great Savior up until his death on July 2nd. 2014. This is Haven Today and a program called War and Grace. Louis's story is so inspiring. I'd like to share 12 other true stories with you as well that come right out of the world wars of the last century. Did you know that the Japanese pilot who led the attack on Pearl Harbor met Jesus after the war? Or have you heard about the Jewish girl who came to know Jesus while she was hiding from the Nazis? And speaking of Nazis, you will be astonished to hear how the Lord used an American Lutheran chaplain to lead Nazi war criminals to Christ during the Nuremberg trials. All these stories and more are found in War and Grace, short biographies from the world wars. This book will remind you that the Lord is always at work even in the wild years of war. Believe me, this is a real page-turner that'll fill you with hope. So I want to send you a copy of War and Grace for your gift to the ministry. You can do that when you visit haventoday.org. Go there right now, haventoday.org. And when you're there, check out the video we shot with Louis Zamperini and a special blog post about his life. You can also make your gift at 800-65-HAVEN. 865 Haven. And if you'd like to hear my full 30 minutes interview with Louis Zamperini, we'll have that posted on Wednesday through our Great Stories podcast. Look for it at haventoday.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Just as we go, if you'd like to know the backstories to the hymns we heard today, we still have Then Sings My Soul, 150 of the world's greatest hymns for your gift as well. I'm Charles Morris. Thanks for joining me. Won't you come back again tomorrow when again together we'll be sharing the great story. It's all about Jesus here on Haven Today. Here for your encouragement and your walk with Jesus, I'm Charles Morris with Haven Ministries inviting you to anchor your day in God's Word. Few things are trickier to manage than a will or an inheritance. Sadly, these sorts of conversations can turn ugly, where family members are scheming against each other to get whatever they want. But there's a greater inheritance, a heavenly one, that doesn't snuff anyone out. The only requirement? That you be a son or a daughter of God. First Peter 1 telling us that in Jesus, God has given us a new birth into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. There is no scheming to be done. There are no worries that you will miss out. There is plenty left for every child of God. In fact, this is a greater inheritance because it'll be with you forever. Rest in that promise for you today. You'll see Jesus more clearly through time in God's Word. Visit GetAnchor.com.